Welcome to another amazing conversation on the Pace and Freedom, a Liberty Caster podcast, and I am your host, James Pace. Don't forget to like, share, subscribe to this podcast, which you can find on many podcatchers like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, and many more. Take the time to like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter and our Instagram, and find all the links in the description below. Today, I am so excited to have my good friend Kevin Kabeski on Season 2's finale episode. Kevin is running for Sheriff of Pima County, and we discuss the riots, police brutality, George Floyd, defunding the police, and of course, his campaign. Before we get started with our conversation, I want to let you know that Season 3 will launch in August, so stay tuned. There will be huge changes to this podcast that I think are exciting and interesting. Great guests as usual, but much more diverse topics and diverse guests. So don't forget to subscribe and set your notification alert for this podcast. Enjoy this conversation. Of course, make sure to check out my friends at Liberty Caster, a network of content dedicated to be free and independent. With five amazing podcasts and growing, you can find news, interviews, talk shows, and more. Shout out to Torch News with Jake and Brandon. The Exchange Podcast with Kevin Warmhold, Radio Free New York with Kevin Wilson, Voice of Liberty with Henry Connolly, The Commander's Table with Ken Armstrong, Liberty Rant with Larry Sharp, and soon to be more shows for your independent and freedom fix. Before we get started with today's conversation, I want to talk about Cash App and how you can get $5 or more for free. Cash App is the easiest way to transfer and receive money between friends and family. You can also make purchases with your free Cash App debit card anywhere Visa debit cards are accepted. With Cash App, you can also purchase and sell stock in the stock market for as little as $1 with no fees. You can also purchase and sell Bitcoin. How to earn your free $5? Download the Cash App from your App Store and sign up using the referral code in the description and $5 automatically goes onto your account. Want to earn more than $5? Refer your friends and family to sign up by inviting them from your Cash App. And for every one person that signs up, you earn $5 for free. Now, without further ado, enjoy this conversation. Greetings, Pima County. My name is Kevin Kabitsky, and I am running for Pima County Sheriff. I'm taking this time to speak to all of you on behalf of the circumstances that we have all been affected by in some way or another concerning George Floyd. I'm a proud citizen of the United States and a proud citizen of Pima County. I've traveled the world as a veteran and I have had the honor to immerse myself in different cultures. As a second generation law enforcement leader for over two decades, I have witnessed and heard of numerous incidents across our nation involving law enforcement, some good and some bad. For many years now, there has been a critical focus on law enforcement and the change that needs to take place. Growing up just outside of Detroit, Michigan, I witnessed many situations involving law enforcement and people of color in the community. For over two decades, I have been an active member in the community, both on duty and off duty. George Floyd comes with many lessons that are long overdue. First, my thoughts and prayers go to his family during this difficult time. Next, my thoughts go to the millions and millions of voices that feel unheard and are tired of the disparity of treatment between law enforcement and people of color. After watching the video of George Floyd being murdered and the officers standing by doing nothing, I was embarrassed and ashamed of members representing a profession that I took and take great pride in. George Floyd will be remembered as the hero that started the much needed change in law enforcement across this nation, if not the world. The lack of empathy, morality, and the illegal actions observed in that video is beyond measure and beyond approach. The bigger picture, after hearing of the excessive force complaints, shows a breakdown at the highest levels of that agency. When I decided to run for the office of Pima County Sheriff, I recognized the severe issues surrounding a department that does not reflect the community that it serves. Under the past leadership involving my opponent in this primary, and under current leadership now, there was not and is not a serious concern over change in law enforcement concerning the targeting of people of color. A law enforcement agency should reflect the community that it serves. This is why one of my top priorities is diversity and has been since announcing my decision to run for sheriff. The first step for change in law enforcement needs to start at the top. 
bringing culture and gender diversity into the Pima County Sheriff's Department is a top priority for me. The first step in creating trust with people of color is to have representation at the top. Representation that can speak on behalf of and in conjunction with civilian and advisory groups. Together we can take the first steps towards a real solution and change. Change through action. Action that my opponent had the opportunity to take and did not, losing the election. Action that the current administration has not. Action that I promised to take immediately upon entering office. I have stood against tyranny and oppressive leadership before and won. I will not stand for it now. I have the courage to lead and create a real change for this community. My name is Kevin Kabitsky for Pima County Sheriff. It's time for change and new leadership that truly supports diversity. Thank you. So there you have it. Kevin Kabeski now on the Pace and Freedom podcast once again. Uh, you were on the show prior and uh, it was a great episode. We talked about so much and so many things that you know you and I agreed on. It was just an amazing conversation. So kind of tell us what's been going on with your campaign. Uh, well, it's, uh, you know, campaign's never easy. I don't care uh, who you are. It's, uh, there's, you're always going to run into your snags and difficulties. COVID-19 presented a really unique um, challenge for a lot of people that were running for office, I think. And um, with the, the stretch in uh, what's going on uh, economically, it's caused people to, to kind of step back, not be able to, you know, uh, donate or assist in the fashion that they wanted to. So for me, I'm doing a grassroots uh, campaign. So everything's been uh, pretty much on my own. I've gotten my name out there uh, a lot on my own. I've had a couple people that have helped me out here and there, uh, but as volunteers, um, I've remained largely my own uh, person when it's come to uh, trying to get things accomplished. I, I collected most of my signatures about 93 or 94% of my signatures I got my on my own. Um, it got me immersed into the community and actually able to talk to people, you know, firsthand. Right. Um, and I've put up all my signs around Tucson. Uh, I put up about almost 400 signs by myself um, in and around Pima County. Um, and Pima County is pretty large. It covers, you know, close to 10,000 square miles. So right. uh, getting my name out there and getting those things up is, it hasn't been easy. Um, and then collecting small donations. It seems like people are, you know, donating as they can and when they can, which is helping me um, reach the community and reach them in, in a way that is effective. Uh, you know, out of the three candidates, I'm the only one that's mentioning anything about what I plan to do and how I plan to absorb this change that, that's coming for all law enforcement. Um, and to be proactive with it and move forward, uh, embrace it rather than fight against it. And um, uh, it seems to have caught the attention of a lot of people. Right. So I know I sent you the, the talking points and I had some questions here and, and some sure. talking points to talk about. And on my podcast, and I think it's very interesting because I'm hearing you talk and I, I'm hearing all these uh, things that you're doing. And one of the things on my podcast is I try to do as much as possible is not use labels, not try to bring up that if you're a Democrat, if you're a Republican or a Libertarian or whatnot. So I want to stay away from that for a moment because I know I mentioned a few, a few times what party you're from and I know we mentioned it in prior episodes, but this might be a brand new episode for somebody new. So we'll bring that up a little bit later, but I don't know personally how much support you've gotten from other people from the parties as far as endorsement goes and whatnot, but it tends to be from what we've seen, I'll use as an example, Tulsi Gabbard, right? She, I mean, I can't think of a better candidate that could have been chosen in the Democratic Party. And they, they didn't want her. Why? Because she was not corrupt, because she wanted to get out of uh, foreign wars, because uh, she was supposedly maybe a quote unquote, possibly a Russian uh Inceptor or whatever you whatever they called her, uh, but she was actually she would have been the perfect candidate. She was a woman. She was a woman of color, and she stood for for the belief of getting us out of foreign wars, out of uh, foreign interventions, 
that have nothing to do with us, bring the troops home and uh, find a way to work with others from different parties. And the Democratic Party didn't want that necessarily. Uh, they went with somebody else that was more uh, aligned with. Um, so that's where we're at. Uh, it, it just seems like certain candidates that actually want to do do good and want to make change and change corruption don't get the same amount of support as somebody that just will perpetuate um, the same stuff that has already been going on. James, there's a big, huge push, I think, during this election. I think this election is going to be a little different. Um, people are fed up. They're tired. They, they're, they're, they're done with this cronyistic, take care of your friend, good old boy uh, system. And I think they're really looking for those that, that want change or that can produce that change. Um, I think you're going to start to see the people come around in that, in that fashion. I think that we pushed past some really big milestones uh, moving forward. And I think that uh, you're going to see people are drawn to that, that new level of change, that new, uh, that difference. Um, what we've got now and what we see going on right now is that you were talking about endorsements. There's a lot of endorsements that are standing by. They're waiting to see who wins the primary right. to before they, before they endorse. Right. Um, so that's, that's kind of, you know, that's another obstacle that both me and my opponent face is, you know, how are we going to get these endorsements? Um, to some it's, it's cut and dry as to who should be the candidate and, and it's to others, it's still a toss up in the air. Um, for me, I, I don't understand uh, why it'd even be a question mark when right. one investigated by the FBI uh, and the other one hasn't. So, right. <laughs> um, so it, it, it raises concerns and those concerns are always going to be there, but times are changing. And I think that, uh, you know, we as people as a whole, we struggle with change. We struggle with wanting to, to move in a different direction. And it doesn't always mean something's bad, um, but obviously there are things that are broke. And when they're broke, you fix them. Um, right. Don't keep holding on and, and hoping that uh, there'll be change um, when things are broke. So. Exactly. I was explaining that just right before this episode to somebody um, over Facebook and commenting and whatnot. And they mentioned, because I'm obviously, everybody knows obviously that listens to my podcast and it is a Liberty podcast. I'm a libertarian. And somebody I posted something about libertarianism and trying to vote for libertarian candidates. And they said, you're wasting your vote voting libertarian because it's a pipe dream. They're, they'll never win. And yeah, they'll never win if you keep going with that ideology that if you don't do something different, you're just going to get the same. So if you have a candidate that is saying, hey, I'm not going to do the same things over and over again. I'm not going to, you know, this is what I got to change. And then you have another candidate that said, doesn't have any solutions, don't have any uh, plans to change anything. It's just more of the same Then who should you pick, right? right. Um, so yeah, maybe that person is an unknown, but I forgot what the, how the, the phrase go, but uh, the saying, uh, it's better, the person that you don't know may be better than the person you know. And I might have butchered it, but. Um, well, it, it, I can think of a bunch of sayings that when you were just talking there a second ago, um, if you always do what you've always done, you always get what you've always got. So exactly. you don't, you know, and then the definition of insanity is, is exactly. doing and expecting different results. Um, you're not going to get changed. Do you find someone who's willing to, to step up and create that change. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I'm running. I think if you look at my background, you Google my name, you will see that I, I put my money where my mouth is. I, if I say it, I do it. Um, I think one of my strongest assets is that I'm very persistent and um, I push. Uh, not always, you know, with, without egg on my face, uh, I'm human, but I, if it's for the right reasons, um, then I think it should be something that we, we strive for, that we fight for. At the end of the day, I want to be able to look at my family and those that I love and say that uh, I gave it everything I had and I did it for the right reasons, regardless of where it put me or what it did to me right. uh, along that path. You want to be on the right side of history is something right. that I always say, right? Um, so 
let's go ahead and now kind of bring up and I think this will be exciting because I think people that are listening, they listen to these first five minutes or so uh, and hear and they're like, they're trying to guess what party you're from. And uh, now that I'll bring up your your opponent in the primaries, people will, will know uh, what party you're, you're on or you're affiliated with. But your opponent is Nanos. Uh, uh, so Chris Nanos, yeah, that's what I have on there. Uh, he's your opponent, and he was investigated by the FBI. He was involved with the corruption from the from his predecessor, uh, who I believe had to resign or was fired. Uh, no, so the way it worked, and I, I'll give a really quick synopsis on this. Sure. Clarence Dupnick was the longest-standing sheriff of Pima County. Right. And uh, at the end of his tenure, he at the end of anybody's tenure, they generally will tend to turn it over to, to a new new regime. Um, I don't think he was aware 100 percent of what was going on. I think that his chiefs took advantage of the situation and they kept it from him uh, for the most part. Gotcha. Um, and I think going into it or I know going into it that my my opponent, uh, he was named. He wasn't a, he wasn't elected. And he lost um, miserably to our current sheriff um, in 2016 because of his involvement with uh, RICO funds and misappropriation of funds. Um, yep. One of the newspapers here uh, cited him for over $220,000 worth of money he transferred into that account while it was being investigated by the FBI. Um, the FBI uh, fought with him. And he argued and fought back uh, openly uh, in the public. Uh, why, I don't understand. To me, if you're gonna be transparent and you say you don't understand what's going on, you open your books, you open right. up those doors and especially as the head law enforcement officer of the, of the uh, county, you have an obligation to the people that you represent to open those books and, and be honest. Um, yet that did not happen. So right. go ahead. Well, and I mean, how, who knows how long this was going on, right? And like you said, you know, there, it seems like there was a lot of people involved in this and they were all cooking the books and stealing taxpayer money, essentially. And so Nano, Chris Nanos and yourself are running for sheriff for the Democratic ticket. Um, so you're, you're running as a Democrat. Yes. And for those that didn't listen to the last episode that I had with uh, with you is you have very libertarian, I dare say, uh, leanings, yet you're running for Democrat. I'm a, I'm a lifelong Democrat. Um, where I grew up was just outside of Detroit and Michigan. Um, the city and town that I grew up in was very liberal. Um, and that's what I knew. That's what I was raised with. And I come from I'm a second generation law enforcement officer. My father was a 37 year um, law enforcement uh, professional, and my mother was an emergency room nurse. So I believe in public service. Um, I wholeheartedly believe in public service and, uh, and giving my all to the public. Well, that means re refraining from taking sides. Um, as a law enforcement officer for over two decades and being boots on the ground, I was part of every major um, incident that occurred in and around Pima County. And uh, I, I was a supervisor uh, during those times, and we have to be diligent not to, you know, uh, to side one way or the other. And I did my research. I, I knew what I was getting into. I don't feel that changing my my party line um, is suitable uh, to anybody running for sheriff. I think it just suggests that I'm I'm um, I'm not owning what I am, and uh, what I am is is Democrat. That's what I signed on as back, you know over 25 years ago. Um, and so when we, when we think about that, uh, I look at you know, what the sheriff is and what, what, what does the sheriff represent? And the sheriff does three things. The sheriff is, is there to uphold the constitution, uh, first and foremost. That's why a sheriff was created. Um, the sheriff then upholds the state law that they operate in. As long as it doesn't violate the constitution, we all know there's plenty of bad laws out there. Right. Uh, and then uh, the last thing a sheriff does is they're the standpoint between a tyrannous government and the people that elect them to be in that office. Um, and they've got to maintain that. 
and they've got to serve their, their people because they're working for them. Um, those are bottom line. Those are the three things. So I get asked, what are my stances on gun control? What are my stances on, on, uh, um, birth, you know, you know, abortion and, and things of that nature. And the truth of the matter is it really doesn't matter what my stances are on those because the sheriff affects law and right. whatever law is there, that's what the sheriff does. Um, it is up to people. If they don't like law, it's up to people to work through their legislators and Congress to get law changed. And if right. that law is changed then the sheriff will uphold it. Um, right. That's, that's kind of where, where a sheriff, a sheriff should stand. Right. I think it's key something that you bring up is that you uphold the Constitution and that there are bad laws that exist that are unconstitutional. And to have a sheriff be able to look at that and determine and interpret a law if it's unconstitutional or not, I imagine it can be tough at times because you do have to play the whole interpretation game uh, how do you determine if a law is unconstitutional or not? So there is, you know, when I think back to the academy when we went through and there was some instructors that taught that, you know, law is black and white, you either violating it or you're not. And then I, you hear from others that are saying that uh, law is, uh, is not black and white, that it's shades of gray. Um, I can tell you after two decades of being in law enforcement, you start out and everything looks black and white. I think as you get through that time and as you mature and become wiser with what you deal with, you, you learn that it's not black and white, that there are times where you're standing on the edge of a gray box um, and it's gonna be called into question and it's gonna have to be looked at, but each incident is separate of each other and we need to look at all factors that are included in what goes on. So when you have a law that may or may not be bad, you have to look at the incident that it's applying to and consider all the factors to decide is it either more bad or less bad in that situation. And you gotta go based on that. And you have to be able to support that decision with facts and support those right. decisions with, with uh, credible sources. Um, so they can't be made easily or lightly. They have to be made uh, with all those considerations in place. Right. It, it is very gray areas. And I think the biggest thing, and we see, and we'll get into this a little bit too, with the whole George Floyd thing, you, you mentioned him in your video. I think the problem a lot of times with law enforcement is, and I don't know, maybe it's like you said, you know, the people that are coming in that are new, see things black and white, and they're just, they haven't matured enough. So things happen that really could have been avoided if they would have maybe considered it more of a gray area, right? And make certain determinations that could have de-escalated the situation or, or whatnot, right? But what we see a lot of times with, with law enforcement is that they'll go in and they see things black and white. Okay, let's just say marijuana is still illegal across the nation and a police officer sees somebody smoking a, a, a doobie and their first instant is like, oh, I need to go and arrest this person, right? Uh, no asking questions, I'm just gonna arrest them. And things escalate from there, the person might need that marijuana for medical reasons, they might have a medical card, they might not, but they still need it, or they were just for recreational purposes and it's their own body, they're smoking a, a doobie, just like any other person that is drinking alcohol has the right to drink alcohol. Uh, that cop just sees he's breaking the law, I need to arrest him without considering anything else that's going around him, uh, anything else that might be going on. What, you know, They go and arrest him, the person gets agitated, things escalate, and the next thing you know, this, the cop just sees I need to, put this person under control one way or another. And if I have to pull out my gun and shoot him and kill him, that's what, it, that's what it takes. And it can, it can get to those points. Yes. Um, I think I, I have a, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, and uh, I've got a great example 
of this situation um, and why tenure is so important in law enforcement. We see a push across the nation to uh, to get to get rid of the older law enforcement and bring in all brand new. That is the biggest mistake that any agency could possibly make. Um, tenured officers and deputies bring a level of experience and ability to see those shades of gray that you cannot get without having gone through that experience of, of years and service. Um, an example of this, uh, I was involved in a car chase uh, and there were several uh, new people involved in the chase and the car was traveling at 20 miles per hour and it was swerving. We thought maybe we were dealing with a DUI and the older, more, uh, I guess, wiser deputies that were in the pursuit were telling the guys that were getting amped up, he's going 20 miles an hour. Let's give this a thought before we rush in there and do something hostile. Let's give it a thought. One of a number of things. Um, long story short, when the, when the gentleman finally stopped, he had a curb and stopped. Um, they were able to get him out and we were able to slow down the newer officers that were running up. And once we got him out, we realized he was in a diabetic shock and he was having a medical condition. It wasn't an intentional fleeing from law enforcement. So that's what I'm talking about when you have the tenured uh, officers or deputies on, there, on, on the department, they offer something to those younger uh, new officers or deputies that slows them down and stops them from making really caustic decisions in the long run. Uh, another one is, is the whole escalation, de-escalation that you brought up. That is a mandated training in almost every single agency across the United States, but it's not done enough. It's not done in the sense that I can't tell you how many videos I watch where people are put into custody and then they ask, you know, can I get a drink of water? Can I sit up? Can I do this? If we've got them in custody and there's nothing stopping them, why aren't we sitting them up? Right. Why aren't we helping them out? Why aren't we de-escalating de to a point, since we have control, why aren't we escalating to a point where we can accommodate them regardless of what they did or beforehand um, or didn't do beforehand? Uh, right. there, there's no reason for us not to be human. And, uh, and I think that we need to get back. So kind of give me what your perspective of the whole George Floyd situation was and I guess is present. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what I did after um, first, because I think that's important because um, I realized something. And I think that if we're not constantly striving to learn and grow, then we're doing something wrong. That should be part of everybody's day. Um, following the George Floyd incident, we had a number of um, rallies, protests, things that went on. And, uh, you know, we're wearing masks because of the COVID and things of that nature. Well, I heard about a, uh, a Black Lives Matter protest that was gonna happen and I went to it. Um, and I stood in the middle of the crowd. I wanted, to, I wanted to feel and see the atmosphere of what was going on. And I saw people creating violence and I saw people cr uh, creating damage. Um, and it was disheartening, not just to me, but to a lot of the protesters. But what I saw the news focusing on was just that, just the damage and just um, the violence. And I thought to myself, you know, this is really kind of mind shattering to me because I see a perspective here that here we have like 1% of the protesters creating this damage and this violence, yet we've got 99% of the protesters here who just wanna be heard. They just want to be, they want to be their voices heard. They want to be seen and they want their message um, given out. Well, the same thing can apply to law enforcement. You see a lot of the violence, a lot of what bad stuff is going on with cops. But what you don't see is the other 99% that are really trying, that really care and are going out of their way every day to do those things. They want to be heard and seen too, but they're not. So we're all speaking the same language. We're all doing the same things. 
It's just a matter of communication between all of us. And I think that unity can only start when we start identifying and recognizing that we don't need to do, now this is, this is a big leap, but I think people will understand when I say it. We've heard about reform for what, the last seven years? Uh, reform, 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 reform. Reform is changing what's already there or fixing what is already in place. The foundation's there, you just need to make it better. That's what reform is. Right. Change is creating a whole brand new foundation and building from that. So now that we've identified what we need to fix, let's make a new foundation. Let's create a new foundation and build from there. Um, this, the talk of, uh, I'll get into this in a second. George sure. Floyd, George Floyd, I watched that video um, and I was, I was sick at what I saw. Um, it was an obvious, and I'll, and I'll tell you, any, if you talk to anybody who knows me and you can ask anyone, research me and find them, you'll, you'll understand that one thing I can't stand, I, I absolutely have no tolerance for, is somebody of rank, power, position, standing idly by and watching a subordinate get messed with, hurt, um, bullied, or anything else. Um, they have an obligation to that rank and to that level where they're at to do something, even if that means standing against those above them. And I think right. that that's huge. So it was obvious training was not in place. It was obvious that uh, what had happened was an, in fact an absolute murder. Um, to, to kneel on someone's neck that's not taught anywhere in the United States, that's not taught in any type of physical defense in any law enforcement agency ever. Every cop I've ever talked to knows that you don't do that. Right. I have not found a single cop, a single officer, a single deputy that agreed with what they saw on that video, not one. And for those other officers to stand idly by and let it happen, they're violating their oath. They're violating what, they're, what they signed on for. And whether it's a problem with mental wellness, whether it's a problem with uh, training, that agency obviously failed at the highest levels because those officers were comfortable with what they were doing. Right. And they shouldn't have been. They shouldn't yeah. have been as human. They shouldn't have been. Right. So um, I think regardless of George Floyd's past, regardless of what he was involved in, has no bearing on what happened at that moment. Right. And what happened at that moment uh, is going to be a definitive change for this nation uh, forever. And you're never going to get away from that. Whether people like that or not, it's, it's a fact. Right. And I think it's something that we need, we need to take seriously, we need to be proactive with, and we need to move forward with. Right. I want to back up to the protests and you were talking about how the media was like focusing on the 1% of people that were being violent. And I see a lot of like the perfect storm of angles here that's happening. Right. And I see, like you said, that the mass media likes to sensationalize things, likes the drama. It brings in ratings. Um, so they focus, right, as you say, on the violence that's going on, either on the protester side or on the, on the police side. And that's all we see. So in our minds, we're like, oh, my gosh, there's, it's just such a horrible thing, right? And then I to see right. that and think that's what we live in and that's what's going on. And there's so much exactly. beauty beyond that. Right. And then I also see where there's a problem in leadership as well because they're not pushing the, the narrative. They're not trying to, they're not doing anything to, to captivate the narrative. They, they can very well come out publicly and say, Hey, shift the focus. Look at what's going on over here at the 99%. And as far as the 1% of the police being violent, the same thing, where's the leadership? Hey, refocus. Right. And we've seen this happen. I mean, there has been departments where they had good leadership and they have done that. 
Uh, I'm not saying that it doesn't happen at all. We have seen departments where they, they took on the narrative and say, hey, let's refocus over here. Look what's going on over here. We have peaceful protesters and cops supporting the protesters and being there to help them, not to, uh, to squash them, right? And I, watched, I, I watched law enforcement giving hugs yeah. to, to, to protesters that were crying. I watched them handing them water. Right. And I didn't see any of that on the news at all. None of it. Exactly. So there is a lot of good out there. And I feel like we need some sort of leadership to try to, to rail in and try to sensationalize, find a way to sensationalize the good. Uh, it, I know it's a difficult task, but unless we, if we, unless we try, unless we like, you know, we, I just don't see a lot of leadership doing that. I think they're comfortable with what's going on or they're just maybe focused on, on the wrong things or I don't know what it is. When personal agenda is put forward, there's never going to be a good decision. Right. Um, one of the things that I've said in this uh, campaign is that um, I know I'm not the smartest person in the room. Uh, nor will I ever try to be the smartest person in the room. But I do know how to surround myself with people that are experts in areas that I don't know about. Right. And I think that's important moving forward because it's one of my tag, one of my platforms is diversity. My department isn't diverse at all. And uh, I, I, that weighed on me so much that in 2019, I made it one of my top three platforms uh, that I was going to bring diversity into the department. Um, I researched and found people and um, I found someone if, if uh, things go well, uh, this person would be the first female ever to be the undersheriff in Pima County. First one ever in the history of the world. So, um, I think that uh, that's important and they're a servant leader. I think servant leadership is the way to go uh, as we move forward. It, it holds people at the top accountable and it gives ownership back to your employees. It makes them feel heard. And uh, in, in exchange, you get somebody who believes in what they're doing every day. And right. when you believe in what you're doing, you treat people that you deal with in a much different way. Okay. So we kind of talked about the escalation and de-escalation right. issues that we have with police departments, law enforcement. And I brought this up in another podcast that I was on as a guest. And something that I see, sometimes I see police officers or law enforcement officers that they seem just on edge all the time. And a lot of the, the decisions that they make, it seems like they do it out of anger because they have some other separate issue going on. Maybe um, they're tired, they're stressed, they're overworked. Maybe, maybe they have issues going on at home and they build up all this resentment, they build up all this anger, and then when they get to the point where they have to go uh, take care of a situation, they're already on edge. They're already stressed, they're already pissed. And they end up taking it out on the person that they're either arresting or whatever, and they escalate the situation. Is that just an issue in law enforcement where there's just not enough breaks, there's not enough uh, downtime? Why are cops in that anger mode? This is going to be a, this is going to be a long answer. You ready? Okay. Ready. All right. Um, there's a big fundamental problem here that we need to address. It's the elephant in the room that nobody wants to ever talk about or ever bring up. Um, it's one of my campaign platforms, uh, not the top three, but it's one of them is mental wellness. Mm -hmm. You got to think about, law enforcement. Yes, they wear a uniform. Yes, they do all that, uh, that training. And yes, they have all that equipment, but they're human underneath there, just like you, just like me, they're human. And they experience the same level of, of emotions that most of the time they've got to bottle up. They've got to hide because they're not supposed to be that way. They're supposed to be that non-emotional person in front of you because they can't show um, a favoritism or a uh, I can't cry at a situation because then I, I'm, I'm alienating the other half of that, that, that may, that has their right to due process. 
Um, now it's going to look like I'm favoring the other side. So you can't show emotion. You can't do any of that. So that stuff bottles up. It does. Um, cops and firemen become calloused uh, as they get exposed to more and more and more. I can tell you from my own personal experience, the first deceased person that I went to that was under the age of 30 really affected me. And for, for a while, I, I had dreams about it. I, I uh, thought about it a lot. I can tell you that after the third or fourth person under the age of 30, it didn't have an effect. It stopped having an effect. And that's, that's not normal. That's right. not normal for anybody who, to get exposed to that kind of stuff and, and, and then end up being flawed. And I, I think that's without that proper mental wellness being in, in check or in place, um, then you're losing the ability to, to help those individuals out and help them stay in a place where they're not taking it out on others or not bottling it up so that it comes out in a, in a different fashion. Cops have one of the highest rates of suicide they also have one of the highest rates of um, divorce right? Uh, because of just that, being exposed to all this stuff and not being uh, given the equivalency to, to work it out or to have, have those, those bugs um, fixed. Right. Uh, and they're human. You know, a perfect example is a shooting. I was involved in a shooting um, and I got three days off. Three days. Uh, during that three days, I had to qualify with a handgun or sorry, qualify with a rifle, go get another uh, um, weapon, uh, do a lot of administrative stuff. So it wasn't, I wasn't even off to, to be with myself. I was, I was off to do all the administrative work, be, you know, conduct an interview like anybody would when they're involved in a shooting. And you have to sit in front of detectives. Um, it's very stressful. Um, and then you have to see a psychologist and that psychologist has to deem whether you're fit for duty or not. And then you're back to duty within three days. Um, there's a problem with that. There's a problem not allowing somebody to adjust and identify what they just were involved in right. um, and the magnitude in, involving it. So there are programs out there. Um, I've researched those. I think they're really good. Um, it's something I want to bring into uh, the agency uh, if, I, if I'm elected. Uh, and I'm getting deputies that call me every day that say, hey, I, I hear you're bringing this in. And I say, yeah. And they're like, uh, oh my God, you got my vote. And I'm, right. and I, that's great. Uh, because I do, I want to see, and it's not just for them. It's for their immediate family too. Cause we got to remember wives and children go through, um, what husbands or wives that are on the force go through when they come home, they've got to defuse. So a lot of times the family hears the story, uh, uh, and God forbid somebody get hurt on the job, then they get a knock on the door. Right. So, um, that causes damage. So there's a lot to be said for mental wellness and yes, you're right. Um, they do, it does carry over. I think a lot of it also has to do with, and we can get into another question, but it has to do with this whole concept of defunding. Right. Uh, and, uh, and I, I propose something different, uh, other than defunding, if you want to hear about it. Yeah, I definitely do. I just want to bring up a few things, uh, after what you explain. Right. And I see the, me the mental wellness thing. And I think part of that is contributed right to how much, we put on police officers, how much they have to enforce. And that's the major problem, right? At least from my perspective, cops have to enforce too much. And it's because we have all these unnecessary laws and there's a lot of laws that, you know, people don't agree with and that a cop has to go in and enforce them anyways. They really don't do anything else but to bring revenue to the government and it's just, it overworks the, the, the uh, law enforcement officer. And then the other part of that is, I think, not enough training as well. And we mentioned that, right? Uh, the escalation, de-escalation training. Now with the defunding issue, I, I mean, I like the idea of defunding because I'm a libertarian and I think we should reduce taxes and for that matter, bring, you know, have smaller government. But with that, you have to reduce laws as well, right? Less, less enforcement, then we can reduce, uh, we can defund as well. Because uh, defunding and not reducing laws and not reducing taxes makes no sense. You're just going to cause a whole new issue, right? Now you have smaller departments and now you have, now you're overworking them even more. So now we're going to have more incidents. It makes no sense. 
I think more importantly than defunding is demilitarizing. And I don't know how you feel about that, but I think we should demilitarize uh, the law enforcement. I think a lot of departments have equipment that they really don't need. So my department in particular recognized um, the demilitarization of the, of the department uh, a couple years ago. Um, basically what's called DRMO came into play and when they were downsizing, they were giving all their equipment to law enforcement agencies and they were getting their pick about what they wanted. Um, and this didn't involve weapons. This involved like body armor and trucks and cars and uh, generators and um, all the things that you would use in a, in a military uh, aspect. Well, when we figured out that we didn't need it, it just kind of sat around, we gave it all back and we shut down our DRMO program. Um, so the only thing you'll see that's even slightly militarized is um, an external vest. It's all that is, is the vest they wear under their shirt that you don't see right. externalized so that they can take it off and that it puts less pressure on their back during the day. So that's a, actually a medical issue that's come up throughout the years that they've identified that having the vest on all day, not being able to take it off when you're in the substation uh, and wearing all that gear around your belt right. um, is uh, detrimental to the back. So they put it on the vest, they make it an external carrier, that way you can take it off, set it down when you're inside a substation and doing your reports. Um, and it re relieves a lot of stress. So it's still the same stuff, it's just carried differently. Right. Um, the, uh, and that's the, the militarized portion. Let, as far as the defunding, um, let me throw something at you that might might change your mind, James. Right. <laughs> the, so defunding, when we look at defunding, we're talking about taking away responsibilities from law enforcement and giving them back to social workers and, and people like that to deal with. So uh, defunding. So right now, and a problem that's going across the nation, and particularly in Pima County is... We're scraping, the, and you'll hear it, that re, uh, recruitment is extremely difficult with law enforcement. Right. We're scraping the bottom of the barrel right now for people. And when you're scraping the bottom of the barrel, what kind of service do you think that's going to provide uh, the community? Correct. If you get more money away from them, you're only going to get more of the bottom of the barrel. If you throw more money at, and there's another aspect to this, social service people don't want law enforcement defunded and that given back to them because nine times out of 10, when they're going to a location, they want law enforcement presence. Um, same with, same with uh, firefighters and ambulances. They will not go into a scene unless there's law enforcement presence there because of the potential for violence. Right. Um, so when you consider those things, why don't we throw more money at it, allow for a better pool of people to start putting in for law enforcement because there's more money thrown at it. Allow for social services to train with law enforcement. Instead of being two separate entities, we put them together and then they train together, they work together, they'll get better outcomes responding together. Um, right now, what you have is you have law enforcement going in, social services will wait off. Um, and then they'll come in after we get there. Um, whereas if they train together, they, they can feed off of each other and the law enforcement will know when to step in when there's violence. Right. And then the, the social service will, will, will know when, when to basically take over and run it, knowing that the law enforcement's there to have their back. Um, that would be my proposition going forward because I, I've seen it for the last, at least the last eight, nine years um, that getting quali quality people to go through the program of being a law enforcement officer is very difficult. If you start defunding them and taking it away, you're gonna get a batch of, of individuals that will not do this job. There's gonna be right. no benefit for them coming to this, this job to risk their life or put themselves in, 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 in harm's way, even if there's responsibilities taken away. So you're gonna get even a worse branch of, of law enforcement serving the community. You're gonna see more incidents and you're going to see more violence. The other, the other angle I was, I was talking to somebody about this the other day. The other thing that I would like to implement and see is 
Right now, there's no requirement in training for most law enforcement agencies across the nation, except for a yearly certification in basic like tactics when it comes to um, going hands-on and things of that nature. Think about how many officers resort to their weapon when they're getting choked. How many officers resort to their weapon when they're dealing with a, a combatant that has a stick? How many officers resort to their weapon when they're dealing with a violent situation? If you increased the violent training with law enforcement, they would be more apt to not draw their gun and go hands-on and we'd have less incidents of death um, associated. So there's, there's concepts there, but they're, they're ones that need to be communicated and talked out openly and honestly and weighing the pros and the cons as to what can be expected and what would happen um, uh, one way or the, or the other. So that would, that would be what I would propose moving forward um, is a com uh, collaborative effort. Right instead of defunding, do a collaborative effort with these agencies, take some of the responsibility off the law enforcement officer um, that we do. Um, one of the most common you'll hear cops talk about is uh, how they are raising everybody's kids. That's more of a social services issue. Right. Cops would love social services to come in and take over that portion of their job, but social services doesn't want <coughs> so they want cops to go in with them. Right. So I can see the, the value of both sides of it. And I, I think I can agree with you on a lot of that. Uh, but I think there's like two parts of it, right, that I see. Sure. And the one thing is, I think, and I, I, I believe we talked about this in our, in our last episode together, where, you know, there's certain laws that we need to look at, at this, say, do I really want to put myself at risk to deal with this situation or put anybody else at risk to deal with this situation. Right. And I even talk about like situations where social, social service uh, has to come in. Um, do we really want to have this show of force to deal with something that might not be that big of a deal? And I get where the social service workers coming from, you know, you'd never know what kind of situation you might be going into. But there has to be like, okay, well, I'm going in for a, a wellness check on somebody that we already know that is not violent or that is, you know, we already know the situation, but yet we still want cops to go into these situations with us. I don't think it's necessary, right? Um, and sometimes they do it just as simply because it's policy, because a, a social worker cannot go in without a, a police officer. Uh, I think we need to get rid of those like things. It should be case by case basis. I like the case by case basis. I absolutely agree with you. I think most situations should be case by case basis, um, but I will give you two examples. So in the last year I was at the uh, Sheriff's Department, we had a woman who was getting her, um, no signs of violence from her. Uh, the father was out of the house and uh, away from uh, that situation, he actually had moved. And I think they thought he moved out of state. Social services showed up to remove the children because of um, some other investigation that I can't really speak about. But no signs of violence, no nothing. And um, while there, the mom was very cooperative, crying, obviously, because the kids were being taken away. But she had slipped a text to the family of the father, and they showed up with bats. Right. Um, so you can't predict. I think that's a lot of why they go in. They don't necessarily need to go in and have a conversation with the parties involved, but standing by outside will deter others from coming in and creating a, a hostile situation. And in that situation, we were able to get there quickly um, and de-escalate it very quickly. Um, but that social service worker was just beyond terrified. Uh, I imagine thought they were going to be beaten. So, um, and we can't predict that. And it's so unpredictable. That's why fire won't go in unless right. law enforcement is present. Then, and the, I, I want to just go back really quick to what I was talking about too, about like what we've spoken about certain stuff that either is unconstitutional and we don't have any business going into uh, or uh, just laws that do we really want to bother with, you know, escalating a situation of a $20, uh, counterfeit $20, 
You know, do we really want to escalate that situation? Um, those kind of, I would like to see that kind of training of, hey, if you go into this situation, it's just somebody using a counterfeit $20 bill, you know, give them a citation and, and walk off or just right. give them a warning. It's not that big of a deal, right? Uh, no, it, yeah, and that's, that's difficult to deal with. It's difficult to see, but what that tells me right there is it's a training issue. There's, there's an absolute training issue there that needs to be addressed. Um, I was fortunate being on the Pima County Sheriff's Department. We've had great training. Um, we've had very li little incidents. We're not free of incidents, but we've had very little incidents in the last couple decades. Um, and that's because our training was really focused on, but there's a lot of agencies in the nation that don't have that focus and they don't have that, that attention to detail, um, that we knew we needed to have and that we recognized. Um, and, uh, without that training, without that, that, that restructuring of that training and a, and a thorough, uh, group of people that focus just solely on that, you're going to run into those problems. You're going to see those issues arise. And if we're, we're, if we're not getting, being able, when I, when I joined, there was like 1200 people putting in for like 30 spots. Uh, we're lucky if we get 40 people putting in for an entire Academy class. Um, and of those 40, half will be vetted out because of their history or past. And then that leaves you with 20. And then of the 20, you're, you're hoping that there's no integrity issues. There's no other issues that surface during like the psychological testing and the polygraph and things of that nature. So we literally are scraping the bottom of the barrel to, to get these, these applicants. And I only, I only fear that it'll get worse. Um, if we don't start, start putting the attention into, into the right areas, into training, into, uh, uh, collaboration with social services and other, and other groups and start working towards a better foundation as we move forward. Um, in, instead of uh, focusing on, on what we've done and how we've done it, let's focus on where we're going and right. how we're, how we're going to get there. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. You know, uh, I know you got to get going, so I'll give you a chance here to give us a plug in. Uh, just, I just want to mention one last thing. I really see you, uh, making a lot of changes. I, you know, I agree there needs to be more training. Uh, I'm on also the side of we need to figure out a way to like, uh, and I think you can do it to train your, your, your department to just ignore certain things or don't escalate things that don't need to be, they're not worth escalating. Uh, you know, somebody is drinking and driving or whatever, depending on the situation, get them out of their car, let them take a breather, uh, let them explain their situation. They might be in a situation where they just need help, you know, right. and, and provide that help for them. I'm glad you said that, you know, deflections coming into play and, and there's a lot of deflection that's, that's happening across the nation. Um, with deflection, uh, a lot of those things are going to be addressed and that's part of the change that's going to be focused on and incorporated. Right. So, all right, go ahead and give us a plug in. Where can people find you? Uh, where can they donate? And, uh, you know, why should they vote for you? Well, uh, I'd say the first reason why they should vote for me is uh, the reasons of trust. You can't, you can't expect somebody to lead you unless you absolutely trust them. I think that my actions um, have backed up my words uh, for the last five, six years. I was a whistleblower. I came forward. I put my entire career uh, and life on the line um, to bring that to the community. Uh, I truly believe in transparency. I truly believe uh, in doing the right thing. Uh, the, the public needs to know what happens inside a law enforcement agency. There should be no cover-ups. There should be no um, anything less than transparency about what's happening and how it's going on. It's their department. Those are their cars. Those are their uniforms. Um, we're there serving them, and we chose that job to do to do just that, serve them. Um, so I think that that approach is, is different from any of my other opponents. I think that uh, uh, at the end of the day, my integrity um, is unchallenged like the other two people that I'm running against. And I think that uh, good things are coming, and I think people would be extremely pleasantly surprised um, at the... Uh, what uh, transfers or, tra or transpires um, if I'm elected.
Uh, you can reach me or, or reach my campaign at www.kubitsky, the number four, and then sheriff, S-H-E-R-I-F-F.com. Um, I have several tabs on there. There's a donation tab. You can donate there if you like. Um, you can also reach out to me. My phone number is 520-771-5229. Uh, you can call me. I, you know, I take it very seriously. I take everybody's opinion very seriously. After my debates, I went through the, uh, uh, the list of comments and I reached out to every person that made a comment just to make sure that they knew they were heard. Um, I care very much about community. I wear my heart on my sleeve, uh, very passionate and very persistent. So, um, yeah, I look forward to being on your show again at some point. Yeah. And uh, I mean, we have so much to talk about. We can go on for hours. So, we <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. Thank you for uh, this opportunity to have you on again. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.